0: Uh, bringing the Lord into focus for us this morning, thank you for that. Thank you for throwing that together this morning. <laughs> <laughs> it, it came out well. I know. I know you got together a couple minutes before service and scribbled something out and said, "Let's let's do this." Oh, okay. You know better than that. Praise the Lord. Uh, Matthew twenty-three. Let's get going. Matthew twenty-three. Quite a bit to cover. Uh, So I need to shorten my introduction, so we'll do that right now. You ready? Matthew 23. We're going through the book of Matthew. It's day three of the Passion Week. Jesus is still teaching in the temple. It's been a day of long teaching, a long day of confrontation. The confrontation now continues. He's gone back and forth with his enemies, the scribes, the chief priests, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of that. And now the Lord is giving a stinging denunciation in Matthew 23. Probably the most stinging denunciation in all of Scripture is Matthew 23. Last week in verses 1 through 12, Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees and scribes, scribes the teachers of the law, Pharisees, those people who've made up their mind, we're going to give our whole lives dedicated to living out not just the law of God, but also and even more predominantly the traditions And the extra rules and regulations that have been made for centuries before then uh, that that are built on the law but were man-made projecting from the law. And they've set their whole life aside to live up to these rules and regulations. And they want to project that on other people. And so they are the teachers that Israel had at this time. And so verses 1 through 12, the Lord tells the crowd and His followers several things about the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they're hypocrites. He says that they're loveless. They will very readily put lots of rules and regulations on you, and they'll not help you in how to live out under that burden because they don't really want to help you, nor do they know how to help you carry this great burden of trying to be good enough to go to heaven. And then he also Says, oh, by the way, they are glory seekers. They are constantly seeking glory and praise of men and titles and the best positions and in whether it be at a party or in the synagogue, and always want everyone to notice them. And they put on outward shows physically in their clothing to look even more holy and godly, far more than they really are. And so now we get down to verse 13. The Lord moves away from talking to the crowd and his disciples. Now he starts talking directly to the the Pharisees and scribes. We're going to split this message. You see the title, Seven Woes to the Scribes and Pharisees. A woe is this attitude of sorrow and affliction. But because Jesus is saying it, woe to you, what he's saying is, woe, sorrow and affliction is coming to you because of these seven things. And so we're going to do part one of this message today. Uh, We'll look at seven of the woes, but I'm going to combine number one and number two in our first point, and then we'll have number three will be our second point. The fourth woe will be our third point this morning, and then we'll see what happens next week. Uh, So here's this idea, seven woes. We're not reading all of it today. We're reading 13 down to 24, the first four woes. By the way, just before I read, most of us will have a Bible that does not have verse 14. It's not a misprint. The 14th verse that is in some texts, it was not in the most ancient text, and so it doesn't make it into this. Though that verse, you may have it written at the bottom, is actually can be found in Luke, so the Lord no doubt did say it. It's just not part of Matthew's text. Matthew apparently didn't write it, so we're not preaching Luke today. We're preaching verse 13, then we'll skip, go right to 15, and then down to 24. Here we go. You ready? He's in the temple. You got the picture? The Lord's in the temple. There's a large crowd. They've been going back and forth. They are now silent, and the Lord is getting ready to speak directly to them. Here we go. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. People trying to go into the kingdom, pow. You shut the kingdom in their face. Why? Still continues. For you neither enter yourselves. You do not enter yourselves into the kingdom. Nor allow those who would enter to go in. Skip 14, we jump to 15. The second woe, we're going to combine 13 and 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea. Picture them. Traveling across sea, where are they going? You travel across, woe is coming to you, affliction and suffering, judgment, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. When they become like you, these proselytes become so zealous, Many of them are even more zealous than you. And when they are, they're twice as much the child of hell as you are. Now the next section, 16 to 22, will be our second point this morning. Woe to you, blind guides. This is nothing offensive to blind people. Blind people can do amazing things. Many of them in our day are doing amazing things. But they're not good guides. And so the Lord is using this in a spiritual sense. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, here's what they say. If anyone swears by the temple, you swear by the temple? I swear by the temple. There's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? But it doesn't stop there. Very similar, but in addition, verse 18. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar. I swear by the altar. You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift? Or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So, now Jesus is going to summarize. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. Did you catch what he just said? If you swear by the altar, they say if you swear by the altar, not a big deal. Doesn't matter. If you swear by the gift on the altar, you're bound. So verse 20, the Lord, trying to clarify, says, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, which they thought was fine to do and break, whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Watch. If you swear by the temple, you're swearing by him who dwells in the temple. So in reality, you're not just swearing by the temple, you're swearing against him. In the same way, verse 22, because apparently this was another habit that they had. And whoever swears by heaven, you swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God. Heaven. When you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So you see? If you swear by heaven, you're actually swearing by him who sits on the throne in heaven. All kind of issues happening in verse 16 to 22. Messed up stuff. Then two more. 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, little leaves, and dill and cumin, little seeds. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law. You're great at this but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Like what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, watch, these, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What's the others? Tithing your mint and dill and cumin. But you shouldn't have these you should have done without neglecting those. One more verse. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Straining out a gnat, swallowing, a, that probably could have been our title, I guess. Straining gnats and swallowing camels. The Pharisees. All right, let's start right here. Before we get, jump into our first point, just make a quick note. Did you catch these words? When's the last time, not talking about teenage boys, or boys in their early 20s messing around with each other, picking on each other in fun when's the last time you heard a real serious adult conversation where someone was pronouncing woe on the other person calls them hypocrites blind you you blind, you blind guide you blind fool you blind person oh by the way what's coming you serpent you viper you don't hear this kind of language What's going on? So just by way of introduction for this week and next, right out of the bat, we hear these words, woe, hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, blind men, serpents, vipers, brood of vipers. What, that tells us two things. Number one, that lets us know exactly how much Jesus detests Phariseeism, hates Phariseeism. But secondly, and I'm about to make some of you uncomfortable if you really delve into what I'm about to say. Jesus using these words illustrates, by the way, Jesus is the most loving person that's ever lived. Do we agree with that? Jesus is the most loving person, and yet he uses this language. Here's what that tells me. Write this down. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to be, speak firmly and directly, we could say very clearly, to the disobedient person. I know we don't like to do that. None of us like to do that. Because we don't want the other person, by the way, this other person may be a saved person living in disobedience to God. Or they may be an unsaved person that's not like ignorant. I'm not talking about launch right in on the saved person living in disobedience or the unsaved person that doesn't know how to get saved. I'm talking about when you've gone over and over and over and you've tried to be nice and try to work it and phrase it in such a way that it's not offensive. Hey, listen, there may be a time. No, 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 I love them. I wouldn't want to. There may be a time. You just got to st- speak straight firm, clear, direct to the disobedient person, that may be the very thing they need to hear. Jesus shows that. Last week, I know I sound like a broken record last week because it was about serving and serving. Verse 11 and 12 finished with that. This whole right kind of leaders are about serving. And I know it probably hits a point with some where it's like, there goes Jeff again and it goes, in one ear and out the other. And we'll just put up with him talking about that. And that's a big thing with Deanna. And they keep on talking about Guys, all I know is there's a bunch of people who are going to stand before the Lord one day. And he's going to say, what did you do with your life? And they're going to talk about, I did this for my family. And here's the attitude. Yeah, unsaved people do that for their family. What did you do for me? And they're going to point to something that takes about five minutes and about that much effort. About that much. And some are going to go, I didn't do anything else. You're going to wish. All I can do is like, please, listen. Are you serving the Lord? Are you serving the body? How do you do this? And I know we say this over and over, but sometimes we're we're just trying to speak plainly. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, what are these woes against the scribes and Pharisees? Verse 13 and 15, we're combining two woes into one thought. Their teaching leads people to hell. Why is this? Pronunciation of judgment and suffering and affliction coming toward them. Why is it being announced? Because their teaching leads people to hell. Jesus calls them hypocrites, both 13 and verse 15. What do you think of when you think of hypocrites? We should think of these things. Pretending and deceiving. Hypocrisy has to do with pretending, watch, and deceiving people. Even if the deception is self-deception, that's some of what's going on here. They're sincere, but they're, they're self-deceived, and so they're out deceiving people, pretending to be something ultimately that they're not. MacArthur words it this way. He says, the unbelieving scribes and Pharisees, watch three things. They, were, they pretended to know God, but didn't. They pretended to be his spokesman but were not. And they pretended to be in his kingdom, but were not. Did you catch it? Oh, we know God. We're his spokesman, and we're in the kingdom. We're headed toward the kingdom. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. You don't really know God. He's not authorized you to speak and teach. You've just kind of usurped that position. Nobody else is doing it by default. So, yes, you are the ones who are talking about Moses' law and all this other stuff. So he tells them back in verse 2 and 3, listen, folks. Listen when they're actually teaching the law of Moses, but you don't have to do all the other things that they tell you. But yeah, you guys have just taken that upon yourselves, but you don't know God, and you're not actually in the kingdom. Look at verse 13 quickly. I'm going to read 13, 15, and here's what we're going to notice. Four things, four charges Jesus actually gives in verse 13 and 15. See if you catch them, four different things. And I'm going to do them a little out of order. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Four things. Number one, Jesus charges them. They are on their way to hell. Very clear. They're on, it's as though Jesus says, I just want to be clear. I want you to hear it. It's in verse 13. You're not in the kingdom. And it's in verse 15, you're a child of hell. Jeff, have you ever had to tell anybody that they're on the way to hell? I have. I've had to tell folks in my office before. I've had to tell folks at the previous ministry I was at. Now. What gives you the right? When I'm asking them what they're trusting on their way to heaven and they have no clue or they straight up say they're trusting the wrong things, then on the authority of the word of God, I have had to tell people, you're not on your way to heaven. It's my job to tell you, you're on your way to hell. And I've had some get saved and I've had others like even agree and then leave my office like, okay, let's just understand you're leaving unsaved, right? Okay, well, I'm going to pray for you and if I can ever help you, right? But this is far bigger than that. What these men have to realize is that Even if they don't want to admit who he is, they they have to admit this. This man who teaches with authority like no one else, who knows more about what we call the Old Testament than anyone else, they ask him all these questions. He always answers them. He asks them questions they can't answer. This one who does miracles that would line up with what you would expect the Christ Messiah to do. And this one who has all the signs, the fulfilled prophecies in his life, pointing to him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, is straight up telling us we're on our way to hell. They ought to have taken note. Second thing he tells them, your teaching is condemning other people to hell. You're on your way to hell. Your teaching is condemning people to hell. Again, what we taught last week. Pharisees, scribes, you are the teachers Israel have, has. You're it. When people come to you wanting truth, what do you do? You start telling them your rules and regulations. When you do that, you're slamming the door of the kingdom in their face. You're causing them. They're coming to you for truth. You're supposed to be giving it. You do a little bit of law of Moses, a little bit of the Old Testament, and off you run into your traditions, and you're slamming the door literally in their face. Third thing, number three, it's in verse verse 13, they actually threatened anyone who wanted to learn more or to trust Jesus. We could even say it this way, they threatened them with excommunication. People could hear them them teach, and they'd heard that for, for years, but then people heard Jesus teach, and something happened. He has an authority we've never heard before. His content is totally different. It just rings with truth. It has power. It's fresh. It's godly. It's divine. I want to go hear him. You know what they would do? Where do you think you're going? We're going to go. No, you're not. You're not going to hear him. You're not going to listen to him. There would be a price to pay. Probably because I'm in John in my devotions. That's why this is getting ready to happen. Flip over to John. Just real quick. We're going to hit three quickly. John chapter 7. I just want you to look at them in your Bible. John 7. Note this quickly. John chapter 7. Look at verse 13. I don't have time to give the background. This is September, October in the temple area. These people are wondering, is Jesus going to come to the Feast of Tabernacles? Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Shh. Jerusalem's buzzing about Jesus. Is he coming? But nobody, oh, somebody's coming. But the chatter is all over. Flip over a couple of chapters. Look at chapter 9. Flip over to chapter 9. Jesus in chapter 9 has healed a blind man. He saw this blind man. He took some dirt, spit into it, made mud out of it, put the mud on the guy's eyes, sends him to a pool of Siloam. He washes his eyes. All of a sudden, he can see. Word starts spreading. One thing happens to another. He's sent down to the Pharisees. You want to know what their big problem was? What do you think the big problem was? That this happened on the Sabbath. Jesus must have worked by spitting on the ground and making mud and putting this mud on this man's eyes. I'm telling this man to go wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. So they want to know all the backstory. Finally, they get his parents, not on the screen. Look at verse 19, if you have your Bible open. They ask the parents, here the Pharisees, ask, is this your son who you say was born blind? They don't even believe it. Like, I don't, we don't think this is him. We don't think this guy really was blind. Verse 19 again, is this your son who you say was blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. This is him, and yes, he was born blind. We know that. But then he says, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. That's our son. He was born blind. We don't know how he sees, and we don't know who did it. Then they say, ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. If anyone says, I believe Jesus is... What did you say? I, I just said, I, I, think, I think he's the Christ. You can't come to the synagogue anymore. You're out. Right there, what is your name? Spread the word. He is not allowed in any of the synagogues. What? People were afraid. Flip over chapter 12. One more quickly. Chapter 12, look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Many believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. This was, to be a Jew in that day was to be a Jew of the temple and a Jew of the synagogue. They don't want to be locked out, but they're being threatened. You profess Jesus, you keep pursuing Him and His teaching. You want to trust Him, then you're not going to be allowed into the synagogue. Scare people to death. They use their force. This is what Jesus is saying. Judgment's coming. Number four on your bullet. The fourth charge against them was they were zealous to make proselytes to their heresy. Zealous to make proselytes. A proselyte in that day, and this one's kind of tricky for me. As I read this first few times, it was actually really throwing me. I'll just tell you right now. A proselyte would be a Gentile that was converted to Judaism, but particularly we're talking about the Pharisees and scribes who were winning Gentiles over to Phariseeism, their version of Judaism. Well, here's what was throwing me. I've read the Old Testament, and I've heard commentators say before, and it's noted, the Jews were not missionary-minded. They were not what we would call evangelistic in the Old Testament. So here I am, I'm thinking, well, I guess they were. I've been wrong all that time. I'm just, I need to update because Jesus is talking about them go, traveling across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Apparently they were, and I've missed it. But lo and behold, several commentators pointed out that it was right. No, the Jews were not missionary-minded in the Old Testament. But in the first century, something happened. Presumably, I'm going to offer that's the Pharisees. Something happened from around the start of the first century AD until AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. The Jews have this surge of missionary zeal. And that's what's being talked about. My mind started thinking about Paul, Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 who wants letters to go 135 miles away from Jerusalem up to Damascus to arrest people up there. It's like, what do you care? They're gone, these people that now believe in Christ, so they're no longer in your version, your pharisaical version of Judaism. What do you care? Let them go. Oh, no, they'll go all that way to get just a few. There's a high surge of missionary zeal. Now watch. Look at verse 15. For you travel across land, across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So, the Lord is not condemning zeal as a whole. I think this is kind of important. He's not, hang with me. He's not condemning zeal. Zeal is a good thing if the right people are zealous. Zeal is a bad thing if the wrong people are zealous. What he's condemning is your version of teaching is poisonous. See if you agree. You may not. See if you agree with what I've written. I think, in essence, reading between the lines, the Lord is saying the following. Scribes and Pharisees, here you are, and they have the law of Moses and the Old Testament. And over here are these lost people who don't know anything about the God of the Bible. They've not heard the teaching of the Bible. In essence, what Jesus is saying is these lost people would literally be better off if you were not zealous. Why? Why would they be better off? What he's saying is, they would actually be better living and dying with no religious teaching than to have your version of religious teaching. We're like, what? Well, at least they're giving them some Bible. What we would call the Bible. They're talking some about that. But they've missed the whole point of the Bible. You say, Jeff, how is that possible? Do you really think that's what he's saying? Yes. No religious teaching would be better than their version. Well, what would happen? If they get no religious teaching, they will die and go where? They'll go to hell. Then how is that better? Write this note down. Hearing God's law is only useful if it ultimately leads a person to realize their sin, confess. I didn't have time to make the note as full as it really should be. Hearing God's law is only really useful if it causes us to see our sin, recognize God's judgment that is coming upon us, lead us to repentance. But ultimately, it's this cry out in faith for God's mercy to come upon that person. That's when the law is really useful to a person. If it doesn't lead to that, then ultimately, it's only making the person more what? Starts with an A more accountable. They're more accountable because they have now heard some truth of God. Unfortunately, the teachers are twisting their version of the truth. The Lord is saying, it'd be better if you weren't so zealous because you're only making them twice as much a child of hell. Not as they were, but they're already on their way to hell, but now they're twice as much a child of hell as yourselves because often converts are more zealous than the people they converted. So this is point one. And I've got to wrap it down very quickly. Ready? Okay, J.F.S. scribes and Pharisees, their teaching was poisonous. They used the Bible, but they twisted it and perverted it, and it was damaging. Got it. Does that still happen today? Do you know we could have, I could have just kept going on a big, long list? Can I give you quickly three ways that still happens in America? Here's one. Poisonous teaching leads people to hell. But they use the Bible. Here's one. You go to a church. There are some churches. And if you were to sit there and really take it in, the emphasis of what is taught, there'll be some scripture. But the main takeaway is all of these very specific, very practical, man-made rules and regulations that you cannot find. Very cultural regulations to keep that you don't find in the Bible. And people leave there week to week with the impression, Now if I do these things, then God will be pleased and I'll get to go to heaven. That's called legalism. It's all It's all in the Carolinas. It's all around the Carolinas. Here's a second one. This is big. Maybe not as much around here as much as in other parts of the country, but some here. Second version, different. Some religious leaders teach their followers that the main purpose, you got to hang tight here, they teach them that the main purpose of the church is humanitarian work and civil rights. Should the church speak out against injustices? Absolutely. Should the church be the hands and feet reaching needy people in a physical way? Absolutely. But what the difference is, they're teaching this as the main thing the church is about. If you go there, the message is, we're, to, we're blessed, let's acknowledge our blessings, let's read a couple psalms, let's sing some songs, and let's get together, and let's go out and give people soup, and hot dogs, and hamburgers, and coats, and shoes, and you name it. So, Jeff, are you against those? They say, no, we're doing a coat drive right now. These are good things. They're not the main thing that the church is about. And so it's what they don't say. So what's the problem, Jeff? People hear this and respond and go do all this activity. Unlike the first group that thinks we're going to heaven because we're keeping all these rules, these people honestly get this impression, subtle, we're going to heaven because we're doing good things for other needy people. God sees this, we're going to heaven. They've been sold a false bill of goods. It's a poisonous teaching because what they don't teach. Here's one more. This is very prevalent and growing, leaps and bounds, really by the week in our country. There's a lot of religious leaders spend literally every Sunday giving their people the impression that God's primary purpose is to make human beings happy. God exists for you to have physical health and financial wealth and career success and creature comforts. And peaceful relationships. And if you're not experiencing those things, you're probably doing something that goes against the Bible. If you'll get that right, then you're gonna have physical health and financial wealth and go have all these wonderful things because that's what God exists for. They never warned, I mean, literally, I'm talking about Psalm. I could name his name down there in Houston. You will not, talk, you not hear him talk about hell. You will not hear him talk about hell. They don't warn their people about hell and sin and repentance and calling out on Jesus to save them. It's just constantly about He exists to make you happy. And they'll pull passages out of Scripture. They don't teach the whole council. They're very selective. That's why I like expositional preaching. You don't get to pick and choose what you're going to preach on. I wouldn't be in Matthew. I'll promise you I wouldn't be in Matthew 23 this morning. Because this isn't the most exciting. And it's like, man, more woes and judgment. We get part two next week. This is great. Yeah. I can think of other things where I would go. The real selective. These people think, we're going to heaven. Why? Because God's too nice to send anyone to hell. It's poison. Teaching leads. Teaching is important. Content matters. Number two, we're in Matthew 23. They lack discernment and authority. Let's fly through verses 16. I normally don't reread the text each time, but let's fly through 16 to 22. I want you to see, there are actually two things happening. I had it originally as... Small number one, small number two, Breakdown. I want you to sense. Do you sense the two separate things that are happening in verses 16 to 22? Let's read it. You ready? Be paying attention. What are the two dynamics Jesus is talking about? Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who sits on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Do you sense the two things? The the first one, it's not on your handout. Let me kind of word it this way. Their ability to appraise things is backwards. Woe is coming to you, judgment, suffering and affliction, because your ability to appraise things is flipped. It's wrong. Judgment's coming because these guys actually acted like judges over things they don't know what they're talking about. Guys, I'm going to propose to you that an untrained person who knows like next to nothing about religious things in the Old Testament would get it more correct than these guys. Watch. Watch. Untrained person. Hey, come here. 14-year-old. Four, all right, listen. There's a God, okay? He made this temple. He dwelt in it. And it's made, has a lot of gold in it, but it has all these other things to it. What do you think is greater, the temple or the gold in the temple? Which is greater? This is not hard. Let me give you another version of it. Which is Greater. Grace View's property and assets, or this podium? Which is greater? You should be thinking, uh, hello. Grace View's property and assets is greater because the podium is part of Grace View's property. Well, you guys are smarter than them, though. That's why you got that right. Which is greater, the temple or the gold in the temple? A 12 year old would go, wait a minute, isn't the gold in the temple the gold? Isn't it in the temple? But the temple has more than the gold. So that's already in this. This has to be greater. Yeah, they missed that. They flunked that one. Here's another one. What's greater, the altar or the gift on the altar? Now, this one, there's an assumption that we know what that's talking about. So I want you all to help me for a second. The gift on the altar, though not spelled out, is an what? Give me an a sacrifice of what? It's an animal. That's right. Now, help me. Four letters starts with a D. The gift on the altar is an animal. It's a what kind of animal? Dead animal. Now, hang with me. We're 12, 13, 14. We're untrained. Got a question for you. You have this altar that has this gift. It's an animal that is dead, that's being burned up. Over here, about five miles away, is another dead animal that died of natural causes, has flies swarming around it. 15, 20 miles away is another dead animal that was killed during a hunting trip and it's being skinned out because the village is going to eat it that night for supper. Why is this animal, holy, sacred, set apart from the one that died of natural causes and the one that was killed in a hunting trip? Because it's a sacrifice to God offered on the altar in the temple. Great, you guys are awesome. You're really smart. They lack discernment. They totally lack. They didn't get that. No, no, no. That's not the temple. It's the gold in the temple. It's not the, it's not the altar. It's the gift on the altar. Don't swear by that. So there's dynamic number one. They totally. It's, it's, I think the Lord is saying, like saying, seriously? Seriously? You guys are the guides. You're giving spiritual advice, and you're spiritually blind. How do you not see this? This is easy. You've got it back. Even if what you were teaching was possible, which it isn't, you still have it backwards. Did y'all catch the second dynamic? The second dynamic is they're very flippant with the truth. Did you catch that? Wasn't that obvious? Do you see again, verse 16, what are you blind guides? You say if anyone swears by the temple, that's nothing. You swear by the altar, it's nothing. You swear by the gold in the temple, well, you better do that. You swear by the gift on the altar, you better do that. So what's taking place here? Write this down. Israel's religious leaders actually had the audacity to promote themselves as qualified to put vows and oaths and promises into two categories. The category of those that you are bound to keep and the category of those you don't really have to keep. Who's making these rules? Oh, that's the religious leaders. They're totally just disregarding the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, over and over in the Bible where God says tells us not to lie. They're just basically saying, yes, you can lie. You just don't do it when these things are happening. But they would not call it a lie. It's just being shrewd and calculated in how you word your swear, your oath. But now they also, and MacArthur's on to something. This is the only other quote I think I have this morning. MacArthur points out the two times, I think it's 16 and 18, where he uses the, the idea, but you are bound if, here's what you guys say, you're bound if this. Now, if it's just that, you're not bound. But when you do this, you are bound. MacArthur writes, since society, since no society can survive without some provision for verifying and guaranteeing such things as promises and contracts, we've got to have something. I mean, you got to be able to hold feet to the fire at some point. He says that's why the second part of the standard was developed. This, oh, this, you're bound if, if you do this. He writes, if a person in that day wanted to make absolutely certain that someone was telling the truth or would live up to an agreement, he would make him swear by the gold of the temple, which was supposedly make his word binding. What did you swear by? I swear by the temple. now nah, you, you ain't getting me. Swear by the gold of the temple. Ugh. Do it. I swear by the gold of the temple. All right, I got you. You really mean it then. Now you have to do it. Put your sign right here. This will be, I'll take this down to the synagogue and get you in trouble. Okay. I swear by the temple. Or I swear by the gift on the altar. They're playing around with the truth and they don't have the authority to say when it's okay to lie and when it's not. Now, guys, I'm going to review quickly. We actually covered some of this, some of this back in chapter 5. But the Lord has us here for a reason. He has this group here for a reason. When we swear, there's an implied understanding in the swear. If you say, oh, I swear I'll do it, I swear that didn't happen. What are you doing? Write this down. When we swear and take a vow, there's an implied understanding of an appeal to a higher power. Being God is going to judge us if we break the vow. That's what we're doing. You say, I've never thought of it that way. That's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm calling on something bigger than me. If I break this vow, then this higher force or power, we call it God, is going to judge me. I'll get in trouble if I break this vow. So I swear I'll do it. I swear that's what happened. I swear that's not what happened. So what is the Bible stance? Now, go back in your mind. You ready? Go back to A.D. 30 in the temple. Here's the mindset and little tricks they were playing. They were telling their people that if you can avoid God's name in the swear, then you're separating it from God, and God's actually not connected to the swear. So here's the idea behind what they're doing. So just swear by something other than God. Just don't swear by God or anything connected to God, and then you can kind of break it. Again, how foolish. Their proposal, so swearing by the temple and by the altar is far enough away? Yeah, that's fine. What is the problem with this? Just don't connect your swear and your vow to God, and then you don't have to keep it. Swear by something else. Here's the problem. Everything ultimately connects back to God. If you swear by the temple then you are swearing by the one who dwells in the temple. If you swear by heaven, then you are swearing by the throne of God and he who sits on the throne. No, no, I'm just swearing by heaven. No, you're actually, it's all connected back. Everything, it always connects back to God because God is connected to everything. Anytime you swear, you're bringing God into the equation. They even came up with this wacko rules in verse 21 and 22, to swear by the temple, to swear by heaven. You can get out of that. I personally, as my opinion, would say, swear by the temple of that day and by heaven. Those are like two of the top five things that you would not need to swear by the most. You don't swear by God. You don't swear by God's name. You don't swear by God's word. You don't swear by the temple. You don't swear by heaven. Why? Because those are the two places where God especially manifested his unique presence the most. But in their twisted mind, this is what they're teaching their people. And God hates it. And Jesus hates it. Quickly, let's look at two passages. Go back, if you would, Proverbs chapter six. Flip over Proverbs 6. I want you to notice this. Pretty familiar, but we want to read it. Proverbs 6. Notice verse 16. The writer of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us something about God. So grace for you. Heed God's word. Your Bible says there are six things that God, that the Lord hates. Six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Seven things actually make God sick. Haughty eyes, proud, arrogant eyes. What's the second one? A lying tongue. They're playing loose and free with the truth in the first century. The Bible says God hates and is sickened by haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness. You notice number two and number six. A false witness who breathes out lies. God hates it, and makes him sick, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Here's what the Bible says. God hates lying, and the scribes and Pharisees were making up ways for people to lie. All sanctioned. By the religious authorities of the day. Go back to Matthew. One last passage that we'll look at other than 23. Go back to chapter 5 where we were just the other day in our teaching. Go back to chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. Let's quickly hit it. You ready? Jesus, going through this list of things, says again. So take it in. Again, you have heard. You've heard that it was said to those of old. Here's what they've heard. You shall not swear falsely. This is what's being taught again. There was some teaching this. You shall not swear falsely. In their mind, we now know what they meant by it. Their meaning, if you swear by the gold or by the gift on the altar and break it, now you're swearing falsely. But here's Jesus says. You've heard, it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say, so if you hear this, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, I swear by the earth, don't do it, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, I swear by Jerusalem, don't do it, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, I swear by my own head then, okay, it's just me, no. Do not swear. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So Jesus' summary is in verse 34 and verse 37. Do not take an oath at all. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let it simply be, watch. Are you going to do this? Yes. Do you take her to yes, I will. Do you take him? Yes, I will. Hey, God says don't do this. Are you going to do that? No, I will not. Let your no mean no and let your yes mean yes. Let's write a couple things down. Jesus calls his people to live so honestly that they do not have to make oaths. We don't have to call God as our witness. Have you ever heard that one before? It's been spoken by some lips in this room. I call God as my witness. Don't call God as your witness. I swear this. Hey, grace for you. Put it out of your vocabulary. Stop saying it. Don't say it. If you've been saying, saying it, ask the Holy Spirit. If this habit is in my life, Holy Spirit, point it out and convict me of it so that I'll stop doing it. Live so honestly that everybody, no one needs you to swear. Just people know. Well, they said they're going to do it. Don't you want them to swear? No, don't need to. Actually, when you swear, you're basically saying, listen, I know I lie a lot, but I really mean it this time. <laughs> don't be that kind of person. How's that affect us? You ready? We're getting ready to hit third point. Watch. How does this affect us? It affects us paying our debts. Swipe the card, told the credit card company, when I spend your money, I'm going to pay it back. Pay it back. You're going to co-sign for somebody? Yeah, they need me to co-sign. Are you ready to pay the debt if they cancel? Well, no, I'm not paying that. Then don't co-sign. Somebody puts your name down for a reference. Don't just put down nice things to get them hired or admitted into the school. That company or that school is counting on you to tell the truth. Tell the truth. And if you're like, "Eh, the truth isn't going to be good, then maybe you need to say, I don't think I can do a reference. I'm busy and make sure that you're busy. (laughs) Here's one. Commitments. If you make a commitment, keep your commitment. But what about when it gets really hard and really difficult to keep the commitment? Keep the commitment. What about I have a better offer? The guy down at work or the guy down at school is treating me better than the husband is. Or she looks better or is younger or is nicer or is sweeter i got an opportunity here don't break your vow don't break your promise if you said i will then do it this is why the divorce rate is so high people people's words just don't mean much anymore what does this tell us about commitments be slow to make commitments be really slow to make commitments feel the weight of it before you do i got to ask you does your word mean anything what value is your word? When you say, I will do that. I'm signing up for that. And you don't follow through. Is it truly an act of God? Or is it just, it's hard. Or I had something better I could do. Back to Matthew and this where we'll finish just in chapter 3 now, 23. Number 3 this morning. They had another nasty habit. And that's that they majored on the minors. They majored on the minors. They majored on the minors. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're straining out gnats and swallowing camels. So in the Old Testament, the Jews were taught to tithe, tithe of your crops right your produce your grains all those things you tithe they lived in a theocracy this was in essence almost like their taxes this is how the nation ran it was largely around that temple and the and the um and the levites had to live on what was produced by the other 11 tribes so they needed to tithe but these pharisees are so particular they're so righteous they don't just tithe on their crops and produce the, the main things they live off of and sell for their income, they tithe even on the little bitty basket that you have outside your, your, your kitchen window. They, they tithe off of the little basket that you have right on the patio. It just has just a few little herbs. Oh, I picked some I picked mint leaves. I better pick 10. Why? So I can give God one. Or if I'm going to just only pick five, then I'll tithe 20% and picture that down to the temple. Well, what's going on? I need to give you this. What's that? It's a leaf from my little mint tree. Why is that? Because I picked four yesterday, and I want to be sure that I tithe. And they got the little seeds. One, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine for me, one for God. And here they come down, and I got, I got three seeds. You guys are holy. Man, you're really sticklers for the details. But you've left off the greater things. You're not nearly as holy and as righteous as you think you are. Look in the middle of verse 23. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. So I read the weightier matters, right? The weightier matters of the law is justice and mercy and faithfulness. You have your Bible open, I hope. Look across back to chapter 22. Look back to 22. Look at verse 36. Does this weightier matters sound familiar to us? Look at verse 36 of 22. Teacher. A Pharisee asked, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great? Mark says, which is the most important one? What do you mean most important? They're all the same. No, no, no. Verse 37. He said to to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So the Lord is saying, you tithing over here on all these things that technically the Old Testament never even called for? That's great. He commends them. That's fine. That's wonderful that you did that. But why are you leaving the greater things undone? Hey, Grace, if you listen, they're majoring on minor things, and they're minoring on major things. Write this thought down. The word weightier reminds us of 22, 36 to 38, which shows us in the law of God, there really are some things that were more important. Some laws, some of God's laws really are more important. So I taught on that, what, like three weeks ago? I think it was three weeks ago. Four weeks ago, five. That's when we taught on the Great Commandment five weeks ago. I did not word it this way. I'm going to word it real simple. Real simple. And you may disagree with me and you may not like what I'm about to say, but I'm confident in being able to say it. Some things in the Bible are more important than others. Do you know the difference? I'll stand by that. All of Scripture is inspired. It's all profitable. Some things in the Bible are more important than other things in the Bible. Brandon, that would probably not be one we would put on the website. But it is true. Do you know the difference? When you're reading the Bible, can you recognize there's that? And then there's that. What is the difference? Can you recognize it? Notice in the middle of verse 23. You've neglected the weightier things of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I read that and I'm like, I had a problem and I didn't, nobody really helped me this, so I'm gonna offer you my opinion. Here's my question that I had Whose justice, mercy, and faithfulness is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about God's justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Or is he talking about the justice, faithfulness, and mercy of God's people? The two options go. Sort of like this. Is Jesus saying, hey, Pharisees, scribes, man, you you guys tithe down to the detail on the little things, but in your teaching and preaching, you don't tell people that God, their God, is a God of justice, and in the end, God will make all things right. You're not teaching that. Is he saying this? You're over here nitpicking on seeds and leaves to be tithing, you're your tenth of everything. But in your teaching and preaching, you're not telling the people that even more than their sacrifices that were called for in the Bible, God wants to give them mercy. Why don't you ever teach that God is this merciful God and even more than their sacrifices, I want to give you mercy when you call for it and trust me for it. Why don't they teach this? God is always faithful, even when you may think he's not being faithful. God is faithful. Is Jesus saying that's what you should have been doing? Perhaps. But what stood out to me was this phrase. These you ought to have done. You, you, done. So that makes me think he's actually talking about They're the ones that are neglecting their justice, their mercy, their faithfulness. So let's flesh that out quickly. Here we go. Write this down. It seems to me because of that phrase, you ought to have done that Jesus is saying, boy, you're really good about tithing leaves and seeds. But you've neglected to provide justice when it was in your power to give justice. I think that's what he's saying. Scribes and Pharisees. You guys have authority that other people don't have down at the synagogue. And things were settled at the synagogue. And they had authority down at the temple. And they had authority in the Sanhedrin. It seems to me like he's saying, you're not protecting weak people when it was in your power to do it. You're so caught up and you're counting your seeds and leaves, you're not doing your job. You're not protecting people. Is he hinting? I can't say for sure. Is he hinting at, boy, they've got... Perverted justice, you're taking bribes from the rich to punish and beat down weak people. You're not providing justice. Is it this? Write this down. You've neglected to provide for the needy around you mercy, compassion. They need help. You're not protecting them in the first point, nor are you providing for them. And here's a big one you're not granting forgiveness. Be someone's sin, just someone has sinned against God and they've they've repented, they're sorrowful. You're not releasing them from that through their sacrifices and their faith in God, obeying the promises of God that God is faithful. You're not releasing them. You're keeping them under guilt. Or is it this, when people sin against you personally, you keep holding on what they've done against you and you will not release the debt. You do not grant forgiveness Boy, you're really good about counting out all the tithes, but you hold grudges all the time. You don't love mercy, and God loves mercy. God wants you to be more about mercy. Maybe you need to count your your seeds and leaves a little less and start forgiving people a little more and use your power to protect the weak. And is it this? You've neglected to live a life that truly streams from loving God and having faith in God because you're so busy having faith in yourself. You're trusting your own goodness rather than trusting God. You're all about your faithfulness more than trusting God's faithfulness. And that takes us down to verse 24. So Jesus is saying, you got a big problem. You're majoring on the minor things and minoring on the major things. You blind God, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now i got to warn you, okay? This is getting ready to be in a moment. Your last note. But I have a few more minutes after that. I need just don't do the old zip, zip, zip. <laughs> You ever seen those people who kind of make the announcement? It's over. The last note has been done. We're finished. Today, more than any, this is I still have a little to go. What does that mean, verse 24? You blind God straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. All right. We know what this means, right? Some do, some don't. Help me out. And that, in New Testament Israel, was considered to be the smallest what? Unclean animal. It's the smallest So in the Old Testament, Leviticus. We have unclean animals. So don't let that go in your body. You'll be defiled. That's unclean. And therefore, a camel, why is Jesus using the idea of a camel? Because in their world, this was the what? The largest of unclean animals. So a gnat represents the smallest unclean animal and the camel represents the largest. Here's what Jesus is saying. Hey, what are you doing with your wine there? Why do you pour your wine through that cloth? Oh, we're straining out in case any gnats are in the wine. We wouldn't want to ingest those because God will know and we'll be unholy and un- we'll be defiled. And we don't want God to see us as unclean. Oh. Huh. But Jesus is literally using this idea of extreme exaggeration. As if the person who's straining out, okay, and drink, but then picture them somehow, if it were possible, swallowing a whole camel, hide and all. Like, what are you doing? It's this. So you really like those diet sodas? Oh no, no, I can't stand on. Well, why'd you just order it? I gotta watch my weight but didn't you just order two bacon double cheeseburgers with extra sauce and a large fry and a milkshake? Yes, because I got the diet soda. <laughs> Hello. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I'm watching the wait. Oh. On a more, more serious, it is this. This, this, is, this really happens probably. I, I, I'll bet you this has happened. Someone cheating on their wife beats their kids physically, steals from work, but they won't drink NyQuil because it has 10% alcohol. Woo, don't do that. You see there, the label's got alcohol. Oh, didn't I see you the other day with her? I don't drink NyQuil. You're really good about straining out those gnats. Swallowing the camels Have you ever seen Christians Some of us be like Yeah I've been there They won't use bad words Won't use bad words And by the way I believe there's, we, we should not use filthy communication And that is going to vary culture by culture But there's some folks That won't use certain English words That aren't in the Bible <laughs> Feel dirty They say that word Feel dirty if their hair gets a certain length. And they will not wear those clothes or that material or that pattern. And I will not read out the Bible out of those translations. I only read out of this one. And I don't listen to that Christian music that has those instruments. Oh, wow. None of those things are in the Bible. But they don't serve Others. They hold grudges, refuse to forgive anybody. They neglect the poor and the needy. They've stopped being faithful to God's Word. They don't come to church. Every now and then they might tune in. They've totally stopped giving to the Lord. They never tell anyone about Jesus and they don't make disciples. But they don't use those bad words and they don't wear that clothes. And they wouldn't dare read the ESV. They don't listen to music with drums. And they judge those that do those things. But again, they don't pray. They don't go to church. They don't even read their approved translation. They own it, but they don't actually read it. They don't share the gospel. They don't invest their life in anyone to make disciples. I think the Lord would say, Stop being so busy straining out your gnats, theological gnats, and start emphasizing the main things. And so I'd ask you this morning this. This is where we're closing. What do you believe are the main things? What are the main things? We now have the New Testament. We have a completed Bible. You blind God, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. One of the things we strive to do here and we need to do is make sure we're emphasizing the most important things. What are those? Well, Jeff, it's family and work. I agree with you. So much of our life goes to family and work. We need to get that right. We need to be right in family. Go home and answer this question. What are the weightiest things in life according to my understanding of the Scripture? Does your answer include the following? Loving God. Loving other people. Surrendering your life to the Lord renewing that surrender. You know there's people sitting here this morning. They have never had a time in their life where they've talked to God, God, I give you my life. They do not on a daily basis. God, I give you me today. I give you my eyes, my ears, my mouth, hands and feet, my mind. Today, I'm giving that to you. Are those not the weightiest things in the scripture? Private prayer with its adoration and confession and thanksgiving. Bible study. Corporate worship. Worship. Is this not the weightiest things? Fellowshipping with the saints. Multiple times you're going to see in the New Testament, use the spiritual gifts that if you're a Christian, you have them. You must be using your spiritual gift to serve the body. I do this over here and I do that. That's great. And I don't do this and this. What are you doing in the weightiest of things? When's the last time you've told an unsaved person how to go to heaven? And what are you doing with your life to invest in making disciples? Does your your life evidence the weightiest of things? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Jesus says, You major on the minors, scribes and Pharisees. You emphasize this over here, and that is fine. It's not wrong. Hey, don't swallow gnats. Don't swallow gnats. But don't be so busy, plucking gnats that you swallow the camel and miss the major weightier things. So just before we pray this morning, I have a few questions. I like questions. Are you obeying God in the most urgent things in the Bible? Do you treat people fairly? Do you treat people justly? Are you using a position in your life to abuse hold down take advantage of anyone or are you using your position to help those that are under your sphere of influence is yours a life of justice i gotta ask it this do you love mercy when someone has said guys listen we blow it and sometimes we blow it really big i mean really big but when that person has told you, I am truly sorry, and they've sought your forgiveness, do you grant, quickly grant the forgiveness, or are you still holding on to the grudge? You love God's forgiveness of your sins, but don't grant forgiveness of other people's sins. Got to ask this question. Be honest. Try to, try to answer this question. Is yours a life of faithfulness? And ask a different way, if I could ask it this way. What would your family and neighbors, these are the people who see your patterns, what would your family and your neighbors say they are faithful to that? They are faithful to that. Are the things you are faithful that your family and your neighbors would say you are faithful to, are they the weightiest things in the Word of God? Is your life marked by love for God, love for others, surrender to God, private prayer, study in the Word of God, corporate worship, fellowshipping with the saints, using your spiritual gifts to edify the church, evangelism, disciple making? Is your life marked by the most weighty things? Is your Word reliable, Graceview? Is Graceview's Word reliable? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Just you and God. Is there anyone here this morning that God is pointing out a lie? A lie. A broken commitment. A false witness. Or is there anyone just between you and God that the Lord is not just touching on a lie? There is a lying problem. Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment that you will give an account for every careless word. Every, I didn't really mean it. I was just swearing by the temple. I was just swearing by the altar. I was just making light. Surely they knew I had my fingers crossed. You're gonna give an account for every careless word. Is your word reliable? Do you keep your commitments? grace for you. Live so you never have to swear. People just know they're honest. They're honest. And then the last thing. Just between you and the Lord, is there any situation in your life where the most loving thing you could do, because disobedience has gone on and on, be it a saved person or an unsaved person, the most loving thing you could do is not yell and scream, But firmly, straightforward, clearly, lovingly speak the truth to a person. Again, firm, clear, direct. It's the most loving thing you could do. Is there a situation of that in your life? Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I do. I thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your help this morning. Lord, not my favorite passage this week, but Lord, I I, I sense that you used some parts of it this morning in different people's lives, and I thank you for that. May we align with your word. May we have wisdom and discernment to recognize the weightiest of things and invest our life in those without neglecting the other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.